in Lamentations 3 today. We're going to step outside of Acts, um, partly because it's Mother's Day and partly because we've been in it for four months. And so it'd be good to kind of come up for air in a different passage. And uh, Lamentations is a good place to jump in. I'm using a different Bible today. This joker is so big, it gets its own stool. My mom gave me this Bible whenever I was a senior in high school. Um, Didn't care anything about Jesus back then. I wanted to make a lot of money and put bigger speakers in my car, my Ford Escort, and pick up chicks. That's all I wanted to do. So let this just be a symbol of God's providence and his sovereignty over people that don't even love him, (laughs) especially if you're a mom. So let that be an encouragement to you. Lamentations 3, we're going to be in verses 19 through 24. This is the word of the Lord for us. And we're going to see a picture of Jesus much more clearly through even a passage like this. And we hear Jeremiah say to us, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Listen, Mother's Day is a tricky Sunday for a pastor, because a message directed straight to moms will lose more than half the room. Right. And then there's also the reality that there are some women that can't be moms. And so it's a little bit of a wound more than it is a celebration. It's a tricky Sunday, but it's tireless work that moms do. And so it's worthy of celebration to appreciate the typically underappreciated. So this is a day culturally where we give out chocolate. We boost restaurant sales today. I mean, we just do, right? We, if, if you're a kid, do you ever make those handmade coupon books? like a back rub or I'll take the trash out and not have an, a bad attitude type of thing. We do that. We do all kinds of things to celebrate our moms. It's their day because moms can often feel unseen and discouraged and very underappreciated. It's so easy to do that because of their steady investment. It just becomes normal. It just becomes static. We just get used to it, right? But if I were to ask the question to the whole room, do you feel valued and appreciated? That wouldn't just land on moms, would it? I don't think very many people feel adequately valued and appreciated. In fact, I think a lot of us feel like we are unappreciated. I think that lands on all of us because that's part of the human condition, something that all of us understand. And whenever underappreciation, whenever we feel anonymous or forgotten, it kind of starts to seep down into the soul and it develops this thing called bitterness. Bitterness is a pretty tragic thing. It turns into this acidic resentment over time as it grows. And the best thing we know to do to cope with that acidic resentment, that pain of it, is self-pity. Self-pity is a little bit of a defense mechanism that we take to ourselves. And that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit today. How we apply the gospel and the centrality of the gospel in our word and how God is good to us through the person of Christ. How do we apply something like that to something like self-pity? pity. It seems so specific. And counterintuitively, by the way, Mother's Day happens to be one of the days where moms feel even more underappreciated than they do on the other 364 days of the year. I've read several articles just this week on how social media actually amplifies the feeling of being un or underappreciated by a mom because they see across the interwebs other moms being celebrated in a certain way that they're not receiving 
at home and it makes them a little bit sad. I mean, the grass is greener. Social media does a lot of things, right? I mean, it, it might inspire us, it might encourage us, make us laugh, it might even inform us, but it's also a funhouse mirror. And when we look at it, it can make us feel self-pity because we're measuring filtered, manufactured moments against the emptiness that we're walking around with. I think that's what the articles were getting at. I agree. And, but, but the thing about self-pity is, is it's no respecter of sex. And it is one of the most, if not the most, destructive things that can be in a marriage, in a family, and in our lives. And it's very obvious where it comes from. It's born from a, a slow-rolling accumulation of very small grievances, Something small, we take it and we put it on top of yesterday's thing that was very small. We stack it, almost like it's firewood. And it finds us usually when someone wrongs us. It, it, it'll find us for other reasons too. If you lose something very important, something very valuable, you will start to indulge in this thing we call self-pity. But very typically, when we are unappreciated or unseen, we will find self-pity to be a very comfortable thing to wear. And it's by far, by far, probably one of the most difficult things to pastor people out of. As a shepherd, as an overseer, as someone who's trying to counsel people out of a pervasive heavy sin, this is one of the most difficult ones. And it is super damaging to a community, a community like this. This is what it says in Hebrews 12. Stay where you're at in Lamentations, though, because we're going to come back to it. But in Hebrews 12, the author says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Interesting phrase. It says root. Root because bitterness will grow into a bunch of different just destructive sins, self-pity being one of them. And it's mostly insidious, self-pity, because we could see it so readily in other people, we really have a hard time seeing it in ourselves when we're doing it. And it feels so comfortable to wear. It feels so comforting. The pity party is the party we love to throw, but nobody wants to come to, basically. And that's why it's so hard to lead people out of it. It's very interesting to me anyway, self-pity will find its origin in just what is pity, which is a virtue. To pity is to feel sympathy for somebody else's plight and their difficulty and what they're struggling through. But like an ingrown hair, you know, hairs are supposed to grow out. That's what they properly do. When they turn around and grow in and become infected, that is a good picture of what self-pity will do. It just becomes infected. And then it's no longer a virtue at all, right? It just destroys many. Or in Hebrews, as he says, it defiles many. Robs us. Robs us of being compassionate others-minded, for the people around us. We can only see our own pain. Even with all the pain around us, everyone walking around with their own different bag of issues, all we could see is that the game against us is rigged. It's rigged, and we're all alone in how we feel. Therefore, when we attack other people, we feel justified in doing it because of self-pity. When we squander relationships and blow them up, we feel justified in doing that as well. But as grotesque as this is, it is really hard to see in the mirror. As ugly as it is, it's not observable when we are looking at our own life. I love how John Piper says this in Desiring God. I don't know how many copies that has sold, a bajillion copies. But he does a good job of helping us see what self-pity is because he compares it with boasting, of all things, which sounds kind of random to compare it to boasting. But both are forms of pride that we access to bring validation and justification to ourselves. And this is how he says it. He says, boasting is the response of pride to success, 
But self-pity is the response of the pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Boasting sounds self-sufficient and self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. I mean, you could see why it's so easy to wear. It gives validation. It validates us. That's not a small thing. When I feel self-pity, I feel it telling me that I deserve better than what I have. Luke, you deserve better than this. You give so much and nobody says anything. Don't they know what you're going through? You're not appreciated. They have no idea. Why aren't they thanking you? Why haven't they given you an explanation? Why haven't they come close to you? Why haven't they showered you with admiration? That's what the brain says. And what we do is we take that and we install it in this echo chamber of our soul. And I know echo chamber is like this super politically charged word now, but all it is, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a real thing where you can take a sound and put it in a closed system and because of reverberation, it just amplifies over time. And that's what we have in our soul. And we will take that slight, that bitterness, that acrid resentment, and we could put it in our soul and like an echo chamber, it gets louder and louder and louder and we rehearse it and we rehearse it and we practice it and everything just looks very pessimistic. We don't have a defense against it. Everything looks like just another injury. Nothing the other person does is right. Nothing gets overlooked anymore. But like a tally, gets added. One more slight to add to all the others. The escrow of small grievances is growing over time. Proverbs 19, it talks a little bit about what it means to overlook something like this. And it says this, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is glory to overlook an offense. Be assured, it's possible to overlook an offense. In fact, we're going to make the case here in a moment, you could do better than overlook it. You can absorb it to the glory of God. You can absorb an offense, you could forgive all in the shape of Christ, and you can move forward with freedom. But when we don't overlook an offense, but instead pick it up and turn it over in our hands, and analyze it, and elevate it, and rehearse it, and add to it. When we do this, you will not grow. And this is what bitterness will do. Not only will you not grow, you'll blame the other person or other people for keeping you from growing. It defiles many. This defiles many. I mean, just take an example. Somebody, you, a friend, anyone, a mom, a dad, it doesn't matter. Always sacrificing for the good of the others. But it always goes not noticed, underappreciated, right? And it hurts. It might not devastate you at first, but it hurts, right? You might drop a few hints here or there, but they don't get picked up. So the hurts grow a little bit more, and eventually the bitterness arrives, and the bitterness will start to eat away, not just at you, but the joy of the service that you're doing. What you used to do that was sacrificial isn't joyful anymore. In fact, now it's a reminder of the fact that you're not appreciated. It actually takes the wound and it makes it bigger. So you drop more hints. They're not picked up. Self-pity comes, anchors down, and grows. That's when grumbling starts to show up, which is nothing but a vocalized self-pity. And now you see everything through a pessimistic lens. You're alone, nobody understands you, and then social media comes along and reminds you of what you don't have, but you should have, right? The grass is greener everywhere. You look across the room 
and your imagination tells you that you are suffering differently than everybody else around you. Their job has no thorns and thistles. Their marriage is tight and complete as it should be. Their friendships are better than yours. Their life is better than yours. Their kids are better than yours. Certainly you want to grow and find joy, but others are holding you underwater. You aren't thriving, and it is their fault you are not thriving. So this self-pity starts to turn into rage, and that's where love is lost. I mean, can you see the author of Hebrews? He's right. This is defiling. That's not a safe thing to hold. Bitterness, self-pity, that's not safe at all. It's killing everybody. You know, one well-documented research paper from Germany in 2003, this guy named Dr. Strober, and he wrote this in the Journal of Personality. I didn't know there was one, but of course there is, right? The Journal of Personality. He says this, individuals who experience self-pity usually expect more from their environment than the environment is willing to give. Personal relationships are characterized by high demandingness on the part of the person who experiences self-pity and who sees his or her environment is unwilling to provide the empathy, comfort, and support he or she demands. Consequently, a person who feels self-pity is permanently frustrated. (laughs) I love that. That is so helpful for me. Permanently. I love it when secular science catches up with the garden, right? I mean, that's about as cutting edge as, you know, the garden with two people walking around. Adam expected far more from creation than what it was willing to give. In fact, he was expecting from creation what only the creator could give. And it's the same thing we do today. We are perpetually frustrated when we expect the environment, creation, people, things, jobs to deliver what only a creator can deliver to us. Self-pity is nothing more than us trying to get validation from the wrong place. The wrong place, the wrong way, for the wrong reason. So many people live here. So many people live here. Maybe you. Maybe you carried some in here with you. I did. It's easy. Permanently frustrated. Are you waiting for a thank you from somebody? An explanation? A high five? Maybe something you're likely never to get and there's a piece of you that knows it? Is the environment unwilling to give you what you need? Hear me, friend, the creation is full of thorns and thistles. And some of those are in the shape of injustice, being wronged, being forgotten, being invisible, being underappreciated, being injured. And when I am in full-fledged self-pity party mode, I feel like I can't move forward until the other party does something to fix the issue. I can't move forward. I feel like I'm stopped, I'm stunted, just spinning my wheels blind to my own faults and maybe, maybe, maybe something that I contributed to the whole big mess. And because the frustration feels permanent, there can be an entitlement that arises and we start looking for ways to escape this perpetual permanent bitterness and pain. This is why a lot of people turn to substances. It's not the only reason people turn to a substance, but it's one of them, right? They feel like life has dropped them. This place This creation, this broken world has dropped them. The environment's not giving them the empathy and the comfort and the support they need. Married people, hear me. This kills more marriages than infidelity. By far. By far. I mean, sure, you might still be married and bitter with your spouse. That might be true. 
But that accumulation of grievances stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks until the love is just gone, right? Are you angry at your spouse, the other in your life? Are you angry? Are you wounded by something they did or maybe just a million little cuts? Is love gone? Are you bitter? This is enemy number one for you guys. I mean that. Hear me now. I mean that. Self-pity, bitterness, and resentment will straight up eat a marriage to pieces from the inside out. This is the most dangerous thing for you if you were married right here. What makes it so difficult to lead people from self-pity is our hesitancy to even want to heal from it. This is weird. Hear me out. You're going to know what I'm saying to be true, even though it's hard to put it into words, but there is this sort of self-justifying comfort that we get by focusing on the wrongs that we have received. Sometimes we want to be healed, but we kind of don't want to be healed at the same time. It's weird. Don't ask me why. It's just the way we are. If my enemies hurt me, right, and then they come and they make it better, I don't want them to treat me well somewhat because then I'd have to change I'd have to grow. I'd have to face maybe my own garbage, my own laundry list of stuff that I've done. It could feel a little bit like the cripple in the beautiful story of Jesus where he comes up and says what on the skin of it looks like an inappropriate question. Do you want to be healed? He says to a guy that obviously needs to be healed, obviously he wants to be healed. Do you want to be healed? Why is he saying that? Because this guy found validation to a certain extent and identity to a certain extent in his wound. And I think we could get the same way. Some of us are hurting today, and we want to be healed. We want the joy, and we kind of don't all at the same time. That's how much validation weighs. That's how much we want it. That's how much we need it. Remember, the sin of self-pity would have us gain validation in our suffering. Not our success, but our suffering. That's what makes it different from boasting. But the truth is, is we all hunt for validation, which is why if you're a good friend, you've probably had conversations with another person that you've seen stuck and said, hey, listen, man, listen, bro, you got to get over this. I know, it's been, I know it was hard. It's been five years. I know that was devastating to you, but it's been 20 years, right? You got to move on. You got to pick yourself up and start moving forward. But how did the bitter move forward? How do we do that as someone who's bitter? I'm going to go back to Lamentations, okay? Back to Lamentations. So if you're still there, go back, 319. We'll put it up on the screen again if we can. And Jeremiah says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. That's, what he's, that's where he's coming from. He's rehearsing it. It's firmly implanted in the echo chamber of his soul, getting bigger, being rehearsed. I remember it, he says, I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, and there it is, there's the pivot. This is a lament. He's pivoting right now, okay? Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is helpful for me. When the Lord is your portion, my appreciation of you is not. That's how that works, right? Our deepest validation comes from his steadfast love and grace. And his grace is his favor to you, totally despite you. This is what it means. He makes you valid, your validation. He makes you valid 
He finds you as an invalid and he makes you valid, not because of anything you bring to the table. No, it's the opposite. It's despite what you bring to the table. It's because what his son has done. He was valid and we treated him as if he was invalid. It's the beautiful gospel story. And what I want you to notice in this is that Jeremiah, as he's lamenting, he's not putting his wounds in a box and pretending that they're not there. He's just entrusting them. He's just carrying them to the Lord. We see David doing the same thing in Psalm 13. I'm going to turn there. You could turn there if you want. You could stay where you're at. It's fine either way. It's just a quick psalm. It's only six verses. But he says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But there's the pivot. This is a lament, just like Jeremiah, he's pivoting. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Again, he lays out the damage report, but he does it with humility, entrusting it to the Lord who is sovereign over all, even our wounds. Make no mistake, he is sovereign over your wounds. He is sovereign over the wounding He is sovereign over all or he is not God at all. And we can trust in his steadfast love, reminding ourselves of what? How he has dealt bountifully with us. The Bible says, dealt bountifully. You know, during the pandemic, we looked a lot at the exercise of lament. Most of you were there. You remember that. We hit it on video. We hit it from the stage several times. We taught classes on it. How to take the tool of lament where you could be gutturally honest with the Lord. You did this to me. You let this happen. You might as well have done it with your own hand. You did this to me, and it hurts. You wiped me out. I cry all night. I soak my pillow. I am empty inside. I have enemies everywhere, and you're just watching. But, yet, and then it pivots. It's, it's, it's the, this is the way I feel, but this is what I know to be true about you. It's, the, it's a beautiful way to interact with the Lord. We don't have to put anything in a can and pretend it doesn't hurt. And this is why it's important. Ultimately, in our self-pity, it's not even mankind we're upset with. It's God. It's God who is sovereign. It's like grumbling, and we've talked about grumbling from the stage also several times, where we think about the fact that we're complaining against people right? But we're not really complaining about people, but about what God is doing through people. That's why if you read the Old Testament, you go back to Exodus, you'll see Moses saying to a bunch of grumblers, a nation, two million grumbling people, he's like, listen, you guys are complaining? You think you're complaining about me and Aaron. You're not. It's landing on God. It's landing on him. Listen, maybe you have a boss who doesn't appreciate you, a wife, a husband, a friend, an enemy, someone across the room has dropped you. But God is sovereign. God is big. But if that's true, how are we supposed to contend with that? I'm going to go back to the same phrase. He has dealt bountifully with us. Who has? How? And why does it matter? Isaiah 53, we see this beautiful thing. 
It's considered the fifth gospel by a lot of people because of what it describes as such a clear, crystal clear picture of Jesus. 770 years before he even graced the planet. And it says this, he was oppressed, Isaiah says, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is such a beautiful piece of the gospel. You don't want to miss it. How did Jesus escape self-pity, first of all? Because he certainly earned it. He earned it. How did he stay far from that acrid resentment, that bitterness, that root of bitterness? He was broken by us. He bled at our hands. He was buried by our might, and yet he did not grumble in self-pity. He didn't vocalize his self-pity. It's because he didn't have any. How did he do this? He trusted in the plan and in the heart of the Father. And we can do the exact same thing because we have the exact same Holy Spirit in us that he had in him. We can let go of self-pity and bitterness. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with us. He finds us invalid and he makes us valid. He finds us, he finds us far and he pulls us near. We're the wounders. We're the rock throwers. We're the villains. And he pulls us close and tight and he calls us friends. This is such a beautiful piece of the gospel that not only does he do that, but he doesn't yell at us. He doesn't scream at us. You see, we're, we're free to be forgotten now. We have a freedom from this gospel, free to be invisible, free to be neglected, not invited, mishandled, free to be unappreciated, underappreciated, free. Why? Because I have been covered by Jesus being sheared. When he was sheared, he was silent, and it covered me. And now I am free to be sheared to cover unappreciative people who don't love me even though they should. You are free to love people that should love you but don't love you. You're free. You are free. We're valid regardless of other people because of what Jesus has done. And so we boast in the cross. We boast in the cross that crucifies our pride. Remember, the cross isn't a place you go to make yourself a bigger, better, faster version of yourself. It's not where you go to change. It's where you go to die. That's where you go to die. Self-pity is left at the cross. And then we become a people, become a people who gain our validation, not even from this world. So when you feel that oddly comforting sting of bitter resentment and self-pity, and it begins to grow in your heart and defile many, there's a couple things I want to lead you through before we finish here and go into worship. One is know that God understands the entire story and the depths of all the hearts that are involved. Every justification, every justification I want to bring to the Lord about my situation and my hurt and my pain, he already knows. He already knows. He knows it better than I do. David talks about this all the time throughout the Psalms, right? He'll complain, 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 complain. He's like, but you know, O Lord. But you know, O Lord. I'm, I'm going through this. They're doing that to me. But Lord, you know. You know. He knows the truth which is probably somewhere in between what you think the truth is and the other party thinks the truth is, right? He knows what it is. God can be trusted. In fact, he can be trusted because number two, justice will be served one day, but it might not be in this lifetime. 
There is a day, friends, make no mistake, where all knots will be untied. Justice will find every nook and cranny in the cosmos, and it will prevail. And we will be content in that moment when justice reigns, but maybe not content like you think we will be. Like there's no scenario in the end of all ends where you're like, good, my day, right? That boss, can we talk about my boss for a moment? It's time to get some validation right now. I am upset that dirty dog, that dirty dog, let's get him, Lord. It's, it's go time. That's not going to happen. That's not the way it's going to be. In fact, that would be us gaining glory, not the Lord. You will be found clinging to the cross. I will be found clinging to the cross when justice arrives. The very justice that won't drop on my head, it won't drop because it has already fallen on the head of Christ. It won't be my own vindication that brings any healing at all. It will be the fact that the king is vindicated, that he is made glorious. That's what will make you complete. That's what will finally satisfy us. That's what will make us livened. That's what will bring joy to us. That is what will bring us happiness, real happiness. And then three, we need eyes to see how we might have caused damage as well. This is a little bit of a tougher sell. Let me just, listen, even if the situation in your mind, you are 100% innocent, and you might be, you might be, you have caused similar hurt elsewhere, whether you know it or don't, right? Whether you know it or don't. Ask God to show you your sins through his eyes. The Puritans would talk about this all the time, to, to gain a proper sight of sin. For instance, for me to bring healing to my marriage, I have to, I need the capacity to see my own sin, not my wife's sin, <laughs> I need to see my own sin in that. Same for your boss and your friend and the person across the room. And I know what the heart wants to say in that because I've been in a lot of living rooms or across a lot of tables where something has been brought to bear like that or rhymes with that only to hear in return, but Luke, they did this. You're, you're saying that I might be complicit? They did this, Luke. Listen, whenever you say that or attempted to, that's the voice of self-pity just holding on for dear life. That's all that is. It's you not wanting to give up your validation. But friend, listen, if you are unable, unable to see your own sin, ask for forgiveness, apologize, repent. If you're unable to do that, you're missing everything. In fact, your willingness to forgive is in direct proportion to your capacity to see the big pile of sins that you were forgiven of in Christ at great expense to himself as he, like a silent Lamb was sheared to cover you, right? And while we're asking for eyes to see, be open to the possibility that your bitterness is unjustified to begin with, that you straight up are asking the environment to deliver more than it was ever supposed to. That's inappropriate. A lot of the bitterness we have, we purchased it. We bought it ourselves. And the fourth, and this is the last, don't grumble, refuse the bitter cup, don't defile everyone around you. When you start grumbling out loud and vocalizing the bitterness in your heart, you're never going to feel the way you think you're going to feel. You're not going to get what you think you're going to get in that. And I always know I'm about to hear something by how they start the sentence, right? It always sounds like this. I mean, I love that person, but finish the statement, right? I mean, I like that person, but you know. I mean, I don't want to come across as critical, but fill in the blank. I'm not one to complain, but and then they let you have it. 
Remaining silent, that's an added suffering, isn't it? Isn't it a suffering to be silent? It's a special suffering. It's a unique suffering. And again, it's in the shape of Jesus. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When at last Jesus did happen to speak, he he cried out on behalf of those who should have loved him, but never did. That's when we find him chatty, is when he is blessing them, when he's asking for forgiveness, when he is speaking to his father on their behalf. I want you to consider that at no time are we more like Jesus than when we suffer unjustly for those who should have loved us but don't. We do it silently. That is the closest you'll find yourself in the shape of Christ. We say all the time that we want to look more like Jesus. We want to grow more into the image of who Jesus is. This is, this is how you get there. It's a special suffering that will get you there. Friends, we can choose to refuse the bitter cup. And like Christ, we are free to cry out on behalf of our enemies. And when we forgive, when we forgive, it's a hard decision. But it doesn't need to come when you feel it. It's a decision that is outside of feeling. We'll say to ourselves, or even out loud, I'll forgive when I feel differently about this. But friends, listen, you'll forgive so you'll feel differently about it. It's the forgiveness that starts to pull the root of bitterness up because it is the path of Christ. It looks like Jesus. A wise man once said, resentment is like drinking poison but wanting the other person to die. That's what it feels like. But when we repent, when we put it before the Lord, when we trust him, when we forgive, we start to feel differently. We're doing spiritual warfare, really. So there's a lot of room for us to repent in a passage like Lamentations, even on a day like Mother's Day. Where have we indulged in self-pity? I've been asking myself this question for two weeks now. Where do I indulge in it? Boy, it shows up a whole lot more often than I thought it would. I thought there'd be like two or three areas where I'd be like, yeah, I could work on that a little bit. There's a lot. Where have you indulged in self-pity? You need to know that that is killing you And people around you, you are not free to keep that. You are, however, free to leave it at the foot of the cross where pride dies and ask God to make you whole. And listen, if you're here and you're not sure about Jesus, searching, curious, maybe you don't love him at all, maybe you're watching right now, listen, you need to know one thing is true. Justice is going to find every crack and every hole in the entire cosmos It will even find you. Every wrong will be righted. Justice will come. What will you cling to? You'll have to cling to a record, a resume of sorts. Yours or Christ? That is the singular question, and it is the most important one in the whole eternity of the cosmos, is whose resume do you cling to? Whose work do you cling to? Whose righteousness do you cling to? And you need to know that's coming because justice will be made perfect. I would submit that you would turn to the resume of Christ who is silent, suffered, underappreciated, beaten, bruised, bled, and buried, and then he rose again. That you would submit to him. 